I don't know what came over me recently, but I needed to watch the Mighty Ducks sequels. But both of them? Both of them. Not the original, D2 and D3. I don't know why I didn't watch the original. I just, I feel that's very separate from D2, D3. Yes, it's different energy. It's a very different energy. D2 holds up. D3 is a disaster. D3 is so good. What are you talking about? Have you watched it recently? Like six months ago. Six months ago. Well, it has been a long six months. I am having such struggles with it. What are your struggles? The chase scene with Goldberg is just like three minutes too long. I beg to differ. If it were three minutes shorter, we would not get that great sequence of him evading the pit bull. Another thing does not that does not hold up is uh, Charlie's love interest being like, I want to change the name from the Warriors. And he's like, but what about the Blackhawks and the Redskins and the Braves? And I'm like, that, I, and I'm like, girl, you could very much go ahead. Tell him why. Tell him those are also bad. Yeah, that's not great. Yeah, that does not hold up. I do, I do like that that movie presented that issue in when did it came out? Like, that was still the 90s, right? Yeah. So it is bringing it up to talk about. Yeah, but she's seen as a joke, and they end up making the change only because they changed it to the ducks. <laughs> progress is progress. <laughs> I just, I'm having such struggles, and I love Julie Gaffney, and... That movie does Julie the Cat dirty. Does Julie the Cat so dirty. Yeah. I love my East Coast hockey girl and does her so dirty. She works hard. She practices. She makes number one. And the person who doesn't practice and treats it all as a joke then tries to poison her so that like she ends up vomiting that whole practice. And he takes her spot and he's like, oh, too bad. <laughs> Got what I wanted. And I'm like, oh, my God. Yeah, that's not great. Yeah. So... I'm still trying to finish D3. It, I'm, I've had to stop and start, but it's breaking my heart a little. But D2, I felt held up really well. So there was that. Well, D2 holds up because it's just miracle. Yes. Yes. With like, Miracle for kids. Just some, you know, great talent pumped in there with um, Fulton. And mm-hmm. uh, then you've got Keenan Thompson. I love Keenan. Fulton was in the original, though. No, not Fulton. Uh, Portman? No. Portman, yes. Portman. Yeah, he is great. Yes. You've got Portman and you've got Keenan. And I think those are just like two brilliant energies to add. Plus Dewey the cat. Luis. Luis. Even Dwayne. I enjoyed. Uh, I, I don't. I'm not a fan of Dwayne. That is the only. D2 is the only film where I enjoy Dwayne so far. <laughs> Fair. I do. I think I like Dwayne more in D3, but. The only difference between D2 Dwayne and D3 Dwayne is that D3 Dwayne is dumber. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Brain yeah. cells. <laughs> <laughs> they turned him into an idiot for no reason. What's Tibida? TBD? Letters? Okay, but in D3's defense, Averman. Averman reminds me too much of my cousin. To work, Coach Ryan, sir. Oh, that is, a gr- that is a great scene. That scene makes the whole movie. But... I'm finding myself siding with, like, some of the villains more than the actual kids. And 
well, villain, quote unquote villains. Like, I'm like, I'm like, yeah, Coach Orion just gave a great speech. Of course, put Charlie in the penalty box. I'm like, when, you know, as a child, I was, I, I had very different things. So just to say that my rewatch feelings are being expanded into other aspects now where I'm like, what did I think about this as a kid? And what do I think about and feel about this now? So how do I feel about the franchise as a whole, knowing that it started as an ensemble cast and it very quickly turned into here's Charlie's story. Here's Joshua Jackson. <laughs> yep. What did you think of the music in D2? The music in D2? The I mean, music fun. in D2. It's a great, it's a, it's a slamming, like it's got queen, like. Okay. No, no, no. Not, not like all of the, the jukebox music that they play, oh. but like the score. Do, 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 yes. Do, 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 I'm getting goosebumps with you humming that. Like it's, oh. It's so good. Yeah, it's beautiful. I'm putting, I'm putting a link to that in the show notes. I'm leaving this all in. I'm putting a link to that in the show notes because that might be one of the, the Mighty Duck Suite might be one of the single greatest it's beautiful. soundtrack score suites ever. I've been on a kick of rewatching, of, of rewatching sports movies with like just solid scoring. Mm-hmm. So I also watched Remember the Titans. Mm, yeah. Solid score and soundtrack. I look forward to your review on a future episode of what you think of the soundtrack to Flubber, which is a sports movie. It technically is. I completely blocked that part of Flubber out of my mind. Flubber (laughs) is a movie about a failing basketball team and their sudden rise to victory. That is one way to summarize that film. That is one way to summarize that film. I have something else that I failed to mention in our season recap. And that is when I was looking up because I I find some of the pictures to like put in like screen caps for our podcast and stuff like that. When I was looking up the fight between Katara and Master Paku, I came across a YouTube video that is the fight between Katara and Master Paku done entirely in Minecraft. Why? No, it's the internet. I don't need to know why. It just exists. And this channel also did other avatar battles entirely in Minecraft. I think I need to see this. I needed to bring this to your attention, and I knew I was forgetting something, but it was it was a crazy week at work and I managed to miss it on my on my notes. And so I can I will I will link it. <laughs> for everyone but that is a thing that i came across and i just love how the avatar fandom has it's just fingers on everything in the world just it's everywhere it's everywhere i think it's so creative you can't escape i I love it and the fact that this show is how many years old and people are still like yeah water Long ago, the four nations lived together in harmony. Then, everything changed when the Fire Nation attacked. Only the Avatar, master of all four elements, could stop them. But when the world needed him most, he vanished. A hundred years passed and my brother and I discovered the new Avatar, an airbender named Aang. And although his airbending skills are great, he has a lot to learn before he's ready to save anyone. But I believe... Aang can save the world. Hello, and welcome to The Pie Show. I'm your host, Kelly. And I'm Colton. And today, we are finally starting book two. 
book two, uh, chapter one, the Avatar State. Book two, woohoo! That was cheesy. I'm going to cut that. One book behind us, on to book two. Opening our season, Aang and the group meet an Earth Kingdom general who wants to use Aang's powerful Avatar State as a weapon to defeat the Fire Nation. I'm going to be honest, Colton. I did not remember that this is how book two opens. I didn't remember this was the first episode. Yeah. When I was like thinking, oh, what do we have? What do I have to watch this week kind of thing? Um, But I did remember this episode. And the second it started, I was like, right, this is this is this has got to be the first episode of this season because we just had a big Avatar State moment. Like it makes perfect sense that this is what would follow. Yeah. And now that we're addressing kind of what the Avatar state is a bit more and how it can be, what the function of it is. Yeah. Um, I will say something I thought kind of contributed to me not remembering this one as much is that this episode has four different writers. And I don't know about you, but I kind of felt it. I know we jump around to a few different storylines, but this one, they're felt like a distinct difference between the styles of stories that were being told from Aang and the gang side and when we see Zuko and Iroh. I did not feel that distinct difference, but I'm looking forward to hearing more about the particulars of that from you. And I think that I might be able to make you feel like it was maybe a bit more cohesive than you felt while watching it. Yeah, and maybe that's just, you know, part of my part of my not remembering this one as much is it, it hasn't been on my rewatch list in a while. This is not on the Kelly indefinitive rewatch list. <laughs> um, soon to be officially definitive by the end of book three. But uh, I think the Iroh Zuko storyline that we get into is just so much stronger than Aang's storyline in memory. Not so much like... Maybe not so much in character, but in memory for me, the Irozuko line is just so much stronger. And I felt myself like waiting for the change sometimes. And I don't think it's necessarily because we get introduced to one of my favorite characters, because I feel like she's almost like a third storyline, but she has her own scene. So that's kind of different. I was looking forward to seeing Zuko and Iroh. Like, see, that's interesting. I. Definitely saw the Azula story in this episode as a as its own distinct thing. Um, and I think that the fact that I'm, you know, I'm now watching these episodes in a different way than I might otherwise, because I know we're going to come here and sit down and like pick them apart. And so I did I did feel that she got her own story in this episode. But I think that that story was so tied to Zuko's story and in so many ways was meant to juxtapose Zuko's story. Not only in this episode, but all the way back in book one, episode one, you know, Boy in the Iceberg. And I think that, you know, Azula is definitely her own character with her own motives and her own function in the story. But really, so much so in this episode, for for me watching originally, and I still was holding on to that a bit this week, she is there in the story to function as a way to show how how far Zuko has come and what he is not and never was. I have so much more I want to say, but I'm going to save that for when we really dive into Azula. (laughs) (laughs) Because I got a lot to say about my girl Azula. (laughs) Do you want to dive into Azula right now? I mean, we normally talk about new characters pretty much right at the beginning. Okay, let's, let's get into it. Let us 
discuss Azula. First off, we get the Azula music, which is just chef's kiss. I love it. That is so ominous. And I love like, that's how you know this character is sticking around. They've got their own intro music. I love that. So that's, that's a first. Her entrance, she's a queen. She just, what like, I mean, she's a princess. But the way she carries herself uh, is incredible. And you're brought back to, I, I kept thinking about that conversation in the cave that Zuko had with Aang. Like, the entire time she is commanding this ship. That that's his, that's his little sister. And she is the difference of Zuko being exiled and, you know, pushed out onto a ship to go chase after the Avatar, the wild goose chase, versus being granted command of a ship in the employment of the Fire Lord to track down your own brother. And she has no qualms about taking him down. Like, she's like, fine, I don't know. I'm going to make this dead or alive. Dad didn't say it was dead or alive, but I'm going to make it dead or alive. I think it's really interesting that you bring up Zuko in the cave. Because his his line that he gets to Aang in the cave is that um, Azula was born lucky and he was lucky to be born. But when we introduce Azula in this episode, I don't see someone who was born lucky. I see someone in possession of so much competence and skill. She has worked hard. I see so much hard work and uh, dedication to the craft and job, even in the way she carries herself when she speaks to the captain of the ship, when she says, do the tides command the ship or do I command the ship? You know, the tides have made up their mind about whether they'll kill you. I have not. That is just a mixture of like, there is that spark of genius of like, she, she may have been born with it, but we see throughout this episode that she is constantly working to improve herself and to be perfection in every way. And to mix that talent with hard work reminds me of another person that we love here, Katara. Having that natural spark of talent, but also the incredible dedication and hard work. Ooh, yeah. Mm -hmm. They are two sides of the same coin. Yes. I never considered that. (laughs) And honestly, sometimes Katara is just as ruthless and brutal. And Azula might be the more restrained of the two. Oh, definitely. And Azula's restraint is where her power comes from. Mm -hmm. That's what her cunning is. Whereas for Katara, her lack of restraint can be her powerful moment. I mean, when she fought Paku, that was not restraint. That was just pure unbridled fury. (laughs) That was rage. Yeah. But not so much restraint. She was going for the kill shot. Whereas Azula... She's very calculated. So I want to I want to back up for a second. Yes. And I want you 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 know before we started really getting into Azula, I I mentioned that I think she serves as a bit of juxta like she her function in this episode, I think for for me, definitely on the first watch, I'm undecided about how much on this watch. <laughs> uh, was in comparison to Zuko. Mhm. And you had thoughts on that, but you never said them. You're correct. I think it's really interesting to see the way that they both arrive in similar fashions, but 
there is there is no doubt in Azula. And I think at the beginning of book one, there is also no doubt in Zuko. They both have this zeal that in them that they're just they're going to get this job done no matter what. Hers is an actual attainable job. His is not. At least not yet. Not until, you know, Aang appears and the Avatar appears for the first time in 100 years. Book one opens with Zuko's job becoming attainable. Yes. Um, and it's really interesting to me thinking, would Azula have taken that quest on? In book one, in book one before, before we know the Avatar has returned, what would Azula's reaction have been? Well, my question to you is not what would her reaction have been to taking on the quest, but if their positions had been swapped. I don't think she would have lost the Agni Kai. <laughs> She wouldn't she wouldn't have said I won't fight you father. She would have fought him and she might have won or okay, died. <laughs> okay. But regardless of of why she went on like let's not maybe she wasn't banished. You know, okay. But let's just take Azula and we'll put her on a boat and we'll give her some soldiers and we'll stick Iroh on that boat to help out and we'll send them off into the world to find the avatar not knowing whether or not the avatar is in the iceberg, out of the iceberg, even exists, whatever. Do you think that had book one opened with Azula in Zuko's position, and then we went through all of book one to get to the end, that Azula would now be where Zuko is? No, no. And I think another thing is she does not, she does not get along with Iroh. She has never gotten along with Iroh. Um, and she actually has her own trainers, uh, this is first appearance of Lo and Lee, uh, the twins that are Azula's mentors. And I think maybe if it wasn't, I think a main point to Zuko's success story, if that's what we're calling it, of like his transformation, is the influence of Iroh. I don't think even if Azula was bounced back and forth, like it, I think... Iroh is the main influence there. Azula is incapable of having that influence from Iroh impact her. She is too hard of a shell. That really was the core of my question that I didn't even realize I was asking. <laughs> <laughs> Iroh would make no impact on her. Yeah, you're right. So she would be with Lo and Lee and... Who knows? She might capture the Avatar. Like, that. that is what, you know... She would have captured the Avatar in the first episode, and he would not have escaped her clutches. Because she would have been... She would have taken all that time alone to train and perfect and become better. Osai really messed up sending Zuko instead of Azula. Well, the thing is... There was no avatar. Well, no, like yeah, he wasn't looking he wasn't looking to capture the avatar. Ozai really messed up with his list of priorities. <laughs> also again, the reason Zuko was that was, you know, searching for the avatar is because he lost that Agni Kai. Azula in that Agni Kai is another story. Yeah. And I think we'll get into that at another time. Azula at the point that the in history where the Agni Kai happened though is, you know, a lot younger than Zuko and 
yes, she's a better bender than Zuko, but I don't know if she would have won that Agni Kai at that point in time. We'll get into that in another episode because they do go into Azula's skill levels at certain ages, and um, we can get into that at another episode. But I am just so excited that we are going to have these conversations because I absolutely adore the character Azula. I don't know if a part of me just relates to her. But I love a female villain. Um, I love that there is no ambiguity that she is a villain. I feel with Zuko and his introduction, we get those soulful moments between him and Iroh that make us, you know, like in the first season where we're unsure if he's villain or just antagonist. Uh, And that's what's really cool about the first season with Zuko. But Azula... We come in with the uh, with the scary music. We come in with the incredible monologue threat um, to the captain, and this like piercing intensity that they have zooming into her eyes, and various other things she does throughout the episode. At one point um, in the episode, when the captain messes up and misspeaks they actually intended they the original intent was to have azula vaporize him on the spot and then they thought eh, that might be too harsh for the first episode with her yeah <laughs> so they went they they didn't do that she just kind of stared daggers down at him and it felt like he was vaporized but um i do think they communicate who she is very it's very clear. I think it's honestly clearer than Zhao. Like, I think it's so clear who she is in this first episode and even the first meeting of her. I think they communicate who she is faster. Yes. Than they do with Zhao. Because we, we get some time with Zhao before. I think Blue Spirit is really where we find out, like, okay, this is who you are, buddy. But Azula, they we get the, we get that Blue Spirit moment right away. And I really love that for her because where we'll go from there is just that much more fascinating of a journey because they're like, we're just going to speed you right up to this part of her life. And I feel like they flesh out a full like a full character for her pretty early on for someone who is just introduced in season two. Agreed. I, I'm not left questioning what she was doing for the entire first book. We're going to talk about some Avatar hair. We're going to talk about some Avatar hair and send you on your way. This is a very important hair episode. Yeah, the hair is important. Well, this is a very important hair show. Well, no, I, I well, I just, I noticed a lot of different hair things. I mean, this is the first time we see Sokka with his hair down. I don't know if you noticed that, but I did. It's weird. It's, it's different. I like it. I think it's, I think it's fun. I think, you know, he's really, he's trying to grow up. And I said, I realized I was looking up my other notes of talk of thinking about how Sokka is dealing with his grief from the events of the North Pole. And interesting that this is the episode where he decides to let his hair down. Uh, Azula and her hair and her fight for perfection. And then we have the big hair thing 
at the end in which Zuko and Iroh cut off their hair and flee from the Fire Nation. This is a big hair episode. Yeah. Well, it's a big episode. It's a big episode, yeah. But I didn't realize how how much hair there was. (laughs) Hair is symbolic of our characters' states of mind. And that's like a thing that Avatar does. They, They use hair to demonstrate, like, mental state throughout the show. I think especially because you have people traveling that you're not going to see as much their journey in their clothes. Mm-hmm. And it's probably a lot easier to draw <laughs> yeah, I, than changing up clothes. I think there are going to be many more moments throughout book two where we mention hair. And yes. then tons of moments in book three where we have hair conversations. We're going to have so many hairy conversations. It's a long, long way to Bossing Say. I think what's really interesting about this episode is it tries to address that even though there is like a right way to do things, which is to learn all four elements and, you know, even historically learn all four elements in a certain order, that you can't just skip to using the like big power up against the Fire Lord, that that's not going to work. That without all the other work, that is kind of meaningless and you really can't, it's not sustainable or achievable. The quick and easy path is not the way. Yeah. So I think that's really, it's really important to address early on of like, all right, so we've seen him do the giant giant fish thing why can't he do that again and to take that as the problem for the episode and let's solve that problem here's why he can't do that again here's why we have to have more show yeah and it it gives us not just that he can't find a way to go into the avatar state but that he's has this emotional concern and fear regarding losing control in that manner and that it's not something it's not just something that he doesn't know if it's going to work in defeating the fire lord but he almost feels he's going to lose himself to it and what happens then so i totally forgot that fong was a guy um, I totally forgot about him. Listeners, in case you're wondering, minor spoilers, he doesn't really come back. No. And I totally forgot about him. Plus, I at first heard his name again, and I didn't remember him enough that I was like, General Thong? I was a little confused, and then I had to look it up, and I was like, no, it's Fong with an F. So, but do you know who uh, voiced General Fong? Yeah, it's, um... Oh, what's the actor's name? He played Jin on Lost, right? Daniel Day Kim. Yes. Yep. I was like, I reckon, I remember the voice more than I remember the character. (laughs) (laughs) And I also, the whole time he was doing the character, I was like, this voice deserves a better character. (laughs) 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 Just like, there's not enough for him to, like, this actor is giving so much, but this character is not. But I did recognize Daniel Day Kim right off the bat. (laughs) And I was pretty proud of myself for that because I find it difficult to identify voice actors sometimes. So I'm glad you got that. Yeah. Yeah. And that's uh, that's the best I got out of this general. And also this outfit with like these like skull type things on his arms like I just we should have known he was a bad guy from minute one and just Atla just said you know like there are some bad grown-ups in this world they don't 
they don't always know everything. And just bad news. Bad news. But a softer bad news than Azula, you know? It's a different bad news. It's a slow burn. Yeah. And it's very... Almost altruistic? I think more pragmatic. Pragmatic. Yeah, maybe that's it. Because you understand where he's coming from. Yeah, he's been fighting this war. He's seen people come ho- come home and seen people not come home. And I don't know about you, but I distinctly remember like the first time I saw Siege of the North, I definitely walked away thinking, oh, okay, so like Aang can just Avatar State and curb stomp the Fire Lord, and that's that. I did not think that the first time, but that's because I was like, I think he's exhausted after that. And also, I was like, maybe that's from combining with the other spirit as well, because they were both mad. So I didn't originally think that. Um, but I was, I feel like I was more mad at General Fong as an adult than I was as a kid. Because mm, he's like using Aang. Yeah. And also, I, it's really upsetting to see someone in a position of power who needs to, who, you know, has someone who respects him. Aang is also a position of power. And Aang is saying, look, I am not comfortable with this. I have other things I need to work on. And, you know, you've been given a task from someone else. Like, let's work on the task that we were assigned to. And pushing past someone's boundaries like that and putting other people in danger, it just, it it made me very uncomfortable. And it was also really tough because, you know, when kids, when kids speak up, you got to listen. They're still humans. They're not just kids you can boss around. They're still human beings that have feelings and uh, concerns and who they are as people. So it's just upsetting to see someone in a position of power try to bully a child into doing what he wants. And emotionally manipulate a child. Yes. And hurt other children in the process. Well, then he's like, no, 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 I actually didn't hurt her. But you threatened to. And that's still not cool, buddy. Like... Kudos to Sokka for being like for like knocking that guy out. Like, and I think the really frustrating part for me, at least, is before like I can understand where he's coming from before Aang and the team show up. Right up, like I can I get where he's coming from right up until he crosses that line of pushing Aang's boundaries and you know trying to manipulate him because he's on the front lines of a devastating hundred year war. He's watching his men die. He's watching his country be invaded. It sucks. And here's this kid who he thinks doesn't have the sense of urgency. Yeah, that the war should need. And Aang has a sense of urgency. It's just in another matter. It's that I have an urgent need to go to Omashu and learn earthbending. Yeah. And this guy doesn't like that answer. But I I do like the show while also telling us that, you know, it's the wrong way and we can't, you know, take the easy shortcut. It does add that element of looking for the easy way, looking for the fast way because we're in a war. It keeps it grounded in a way. Yeah. And that the clock is still ticking and that there is still a cost every single day. Yeah. I think one of my one of the things about this episode that is also really beautiful to me is that at the end where they are offered like, you know, he's like, oh, I can still take like they have all these soldiers who are going to escort them to Omashu and stuff. And like, I think they probably still would. I think they do they like offer something like that, like that the gang decides to go alone. And that no one there follows them, that they leave it alone and that it gives the gang autonomy. They made the decision. I don't want these people. These people have pushed my boundaries. You are not going to be near me. We are going to do our own thing. 
and giving children autonomy, especially when, you know, their boundaries are being pushed is just, I think, a great thing to show. Cute animal alert. There are not many cute animals in this episode. There are. Are there any new animals in this episode? No, because we have met the ostrich horse before. Mm-hmm. Um, we've met the ostrich horse before. We've got Appa. We have Momo. I think, so I mentioned this in the recap about Momo being more Sokka's pet. Yeah, yeah. And so I'm starting to see more examples, especially with uh, when he goes to shock Aang into the Avatar state and him and Momo work together and then they both trip and both like kind of like fall together and they have a great time and just I love that (laughs) I love that I'm starting to see the pieces together a bit more on that I thought of you when I saw that scene especially because the way they do it is Sokka like puts Momo's head like he holds momo in such a way where momo's head looks like his head yes it's like they're just one they're just one being they're just one being together and i know that screen cap is like a huge like meme and everything too um but i love that and then this is not so this is animal adjacent but there is a stone statue when they are trying to do like the ritual ceremony of a badger mole at the like sacred earth temple type thing and uh we learn later that the badger moles were the originators of earth bending but i thought it was just a really cool catch to see that that iconography in an area of the earth kingdom that is further away from a place like omashu from from omashu and bossing say it's it's closer to the north pole yeah, we get badger moles pretty soon Pretty soon. They don't stay secret for long. The first time I watched this episode ever, I was shocked to see Zuko and Iroh. Shocked. Well, they end so nicely in book one. You don't really expect them to come back. Yeah, you get that I'm tired and I'm like, oh, baby, take a nap. Like, go to sleep. Just stay asleep. That must have been some nap because he is so ready to go with renewed vigor this week. There's just, there's a lightness about him. I mean, I caught him smiling in this episode at one point. He actually smiled. Well, yeah, he thought for half a second that his daddy loves him. I know. I know. And it hurt me. That's all he really wants. Little does he know his dad does love him and cares about him and tells him in this episode. But, you know... He's too obsessed with whether or not his biological father cares about him. <laughs> you took me on a ride there, Colton. I did take you on a ride there. <laughs> you did. You were like, where are you I going with I had a face that? journey. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sad our listeners won't get to see that. But yeah, oh, Zuko, he gets me. It hurts. Zuko at the beginning of this episode, there's n- not as much behind what he says as the beginning of season one it is a less intensity to it it's it feels softened does that make sense it it does and i think what i was getting from him was you know it's it's not it's definitely quiet intensity yeah it's more it's quieter it's more reserved it feels more resolved Mm. and i'm not sure frantic i was gonna say i'm not sure if that resolve is genuine or performative yeah 
it feel, it's a less of a frantic, manic energy than I got from beginning of season one all the way through. Yeah, I think, and I think the disconnect with that is, you know, with, with Zuko's seeming state of mind and his words, is that I think at this point he doesn't necessarily really care about capturing the Avatar in and of itself. I think he definitely wants to regain his honor from a conceptual standpoint. But I think he just wants to be happy. I think his goal has kind of changed. Not like, well, his motivation has changed. It's not so much, you know, I'm going to capture the avatar so I can like so I can uh, regain my honor and all this stuff. I think the honor thing is still there, but I think he just wants to go home. I think going home was less of a motivation. He wants to go home at any cost this time. Maybe that's not the right way to put it. I'm trying to find my words for it, but he wants. He wants to go home and he wants to rest as opposed to before where he was like, ha I've captured the Avatar, Dad. What do you want me to do next? I will do more. I'll do this. I'll do that. Like there's the kid. The kid has taken a Prozac and it's it's, you know, less manic. Yeah, I think last season the honor was at the forefront of it. He wanted his honor. His honor was a means to get home. His honor was a means for his father's love. I feel like he's questioning whether capturing the avatar equals honor right away. That could be. I mean, we had we had our discussion recently about, you know, whether or not that is the case. Um, but I think I think it, even if that's the case, he's starting to step away from wanting his honor in the abstract. And he might be starting to come to realize that what he really wants is not his honor, but it is his father's love and to go home. I think also honor in the first season was what his father told him honor was. Whereas this season, honor is something that he is trying to form himself, an idea of what honor is and what regaining his honor is, as opposed to a cookie cutter thing that his dad told him it was. So when it when in doubt, go back to the thing that got you going in the first place, which is capturing the avatar. I do like your point about going home, though, because when Azula shows up and tells him, like, we can go home, he's like, I, we can go home? Real? Like, he is a puppy dog. We can go home? My dad cares about me? Oh, my God. And there's, like, little things that, little things in her discussion with him that Iroh picks up on, but he, but Zuko does not. In my country. That knife twist. I think calling him Zuzu, which is mm. this the first time we hear that? It is the first time we hear that. I love that. The I love that she nickname. has that nickname. Yeah, that it's kind of it's it's condescending. Oh, Zuzu. But not only that, it's condescending, but it puts him back. Yes. In the place where he was. In a vulnerable position, and he falls for it, and. You're just reminded he's a kid who just wants to go home. And the thing is, I think why Azula was perfect for this job is because she is also a kid. She grew up with Zuko. She knows the perfect way to manipulate him. And any other soldier is not going to view him as just a kid who wants to go home. They're going to they're gonna try and brute force their way through like, you know, Zhao. Whereas she's like, he's just my brother. I can have him wrapped around my finger like I used to when I was five. Like... He's Zuzu. It's a very different relationship. And she reestablishes that whole relationship just from the hello brother and has that and manages to reestablish that relationship in that conversation, keeps him on the hook. And it's only the captain being like, we have the prisoners that 
just completely shatters the facade. She could have gotten both of them on that boat. Yeah, she did get both of them on she that boat. She could have had Zeus. I honestly, I don't know if he was separated from Iroh, if Iroh had decided not to go and she had been like, you know, we're going to have to just put you in this just just so we can get past the border. You know, other people don't know yet. Like, I think she could have she could have sweet talked her way into the easiest victory if other people weren't involved. <laughs> Definitely. But there was no way Iroh was ever going to abandon Zuko. No, no. I think it's so interesting to see in the hut that Iroh and Azula have a very different relationship. When she snaps at him? Ooh, yes. When she crushes the shells. Yeah. There are just these little things, and she just, she does not respect him at all. But he respects her. I think he doesn't underestimate her. When when Zuko and Zhao would have dealings, Iroh did not hesitate to interject. Mm-hmm. He waits his turn to speak in this in this trio meeting. I think he matches her energy in that Azula is more calculating, and so Iroh has to be more calculating. Whereas Zhao is more ambitious, and Iroh has to be Iroh has to feed that ambition to you know get Zhao. Uh, so he is he has to be more calculating with Azula. He's taken the measure of his opponent. Even when Zuko and Iroh are cornered by the guards and everything, he takes a step back. He's like, all right, I need to handle all these guards first, and then we can deal with Azula. You know, Zuko will keep her handled for a bit, but he's the one who redirects her lightning. I think we have to talk about the battle at the end. Battle at the end, yeah. Which is this week battles at the end. Battles, yes. We have parallel battles. We have parallel battles. I kind of like when there's parallel battles. I kind of like when there's parallelism. <laughs> I just, I think, I mentioned this at the beginning, but I really loved the Zuko Iroh storyline more than the Aang storyline. But which battle did you like more? I liked the Zuko and Azula battle. It's more personal. It's more personal, especially because it reminded me of Zuko fighting Sokka for the very first time. Zuko's the Sokka? Because, yes, because Azula does not bend at him. She does not use her bending in fighting Zuko. And it's not until she's pushed that she decides to do it. And then she gets interrupted by Iroh. I took a note on this because I was really paying attention to Zuko's fighting style. And when he is storming the ship, he bends at both of the guards to take them out. And he does so quickly and effectively. But when he goes to fight Azula... I think that Azula is a stronger bender than Zuko, and I think they both know it. But instead of just getting angry and head down and like trying to blow through her, I think Zuko has grown and learned enough where he knows to play to his own advantages. And he doesn't he doesn't try to like go for an all-out bending fight against her. He takes a quick second to bend himself a couple of little fire daggers. We know he has extensive melee weaponry training, and he gets in right up close against her, where her bending is probably not going to be as effective. But does he get close? He definitely tries to. He tries to stay on top of her and keep that distance as close as possible the entire fight where he has the advantage. Or where he thinks he has the advantage. Yeah, because, I don't know, we saw her training earlier, and she was able to keep lightning very contained. We know this, but he might not. He knew. He knows she's a better bender. I think that might be where he's coming from, is get a few, you know, get a few fire daggers going, 
get in close, and that's where I can succeed. I don't think that's where Azula's coming from. I don't think that's why she doesn't firebend against him or lightning bend or anything. I think it's purely from that standpoint that Zuko had versus Sokka's, and it's not worth it. You're not going to win anyways. She, What is the point of her expending her energy when she can just avoid him like this? I was so focused on Zuko, I didn't even try to get into Zula's head. <laughs> I I jumped into her head. <laughs> I was like, what's the point? And that's where I saw that uh, Zuko-Sokka battle of, you know, and it's only after Sokka gets that hit off that he firebends. And it's only once, you know, Zuko has pushed her far enough that she goes to lightning bend and Iroh interrupts. Mm. Which is funny because she doesn't have to bend to beat him at that point because she is so much more powerful than he is and such a better fighter than he is. He basically beat himself. So I think the moment he got past those two guards, he lost control of himself. Not in a sense of like, like, you know, punching out fire flames and stuff like that. But I think he was very much brought into this mindset of I'm battling my very talented sister and oh God, what do I do? And all he could muster, like when I watched it, I saw all I can muster are these two daggers right now. I will focus all my energy onto these two daggers and just try and get in there. Like it it felt like his training kind of went out of his head because Azula is the one who's grounded. He doesn't attack the root like you would think. And she gets the high ground. He loses all of his training because he is brought back to he is brought back to younger Zuko having to fight his sister. It's not cool, collected blue spirit, you know, fighting from a state of calm. It is angry rage monster Agni Kai against Zhao Zuko. Yes. And I think, you know, you're right. Azula didn't need to firebend to win that to win that battle, but she does. And I think it's a calculated move. She's done with this. She's putting an end to this. This is unnecessary. We're done now. Other battle? So we're going to the other battle, which is General Fong. I don't like him, so I'm going to say it that way. General Fong versus Aang and Sokka. Not really Katara. Katara's in a damsel in distress situation. I think that's because if you let Katara loose on this, she might, you know, really tip the scales. Well, (laughs) I mean, she tried to get in on it at the beginning and just made mud. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, it's, it's... Katara has some really, she just had some really strong moments and some really great fights, and she gets a lot more. Yeah, yeah. This is, it's not, it's not the best Katara, but pretty good Sokka battle, though. That boomerang. That boomerang. That boomerang, but also, we had to rewatch, in our house, we had to rewatch where he, um, he lifts himself up and he kicks both of the guards in, in the crotch. Mm Mm-hmm. And takes out two guards that way. And I'm like, that is creative thinking. That is a warrior. Yeah, by any means. He really holds his own. He's like, all right, Aang, you focus on the general. I will take out everyone else as much as I can. He throws the one boomerang. He takes out like half the other team with the one throw. He takes out a number of people. I'm super impressed. He gets himself a mount. He uses the mount. Yeah. Yeah. Never ridden before, so we think what we know, but he just goes. And this is a non-bender going up against multiple benders. Every single one of those people was a bender. Seemingly powerful benders surrounded in the midst of their element. Yes. And even, I don't know if you recognize, but like, 
Did those discs popping out of the ground feel very Korra-esque? Oh, yeah. Yeah, this this fight definitely hit home for me how much, like, Earth Kingdom design. The Earth Kingdom itself is just all about earthbending. Yeah, and architecture is super important for how they, you know, how they set themselves up. Yeah. I mean, we'll learn that with Bossing Say and why it's, you know the impenetrable city. But, like, your fortress is also fighting. Yeah. Also, the only other, like, Earth Kingdom city we have to compare to is Omashu, and still very different. Mm-hmm. No male shoots here. No male shoots here, no. But no giant weaponized disc launchers in Omashu. Who needs catapults, right? <laughs> Well, you got mad at me when I said something was a catapult. What did you call it instead? It wasn't a catapult. Oh, it was a trebuchet. It was a trebuchet, yes. Yeah, we had trebuchets <laughs> from the Fire Nation, but, I mean, catapults are still a thing. That's, They're still a that thing, That one yeah. just wasn't. That one was a trebuchet. So, Aang goes into the Avatar state, finally. Aang goes into the Avatar state. He gets what he wants. Fong is not a failure. There were a few different things about... The Avatar State, because we really haven't talked about the Avatar State in the episode The Avatar State that much. But Aang is finally pushed past his limit into the Avatar State. And a few first about this is that we're not going to have this fight, but I need to clarify that we're not going to have this fight this episode. We'll, we'll fight in the swamp. But... This is this is marked as one of as the first known instance of an avatar entering the spirit world while in the avatar state. And Colton and I have both shared our differences on what the spirit world is. I know you do not agree with me. I am just going to just note that that is something that a lot of avatar fans notice about this and that it, it's it's pretty distinct. Also, this is the first this would be the first time that I'll do this. This is the first time that Aang's spirit leaves his body. I'm going to put it that way. That Aang's spirit leaves his body without him meditating. That's an interesting way of putting it because I think I consider the avatar state like that trance state to be a form of meditation. Yes, but he's still his soul is. I, I, I know what you mean. It yeah, leaves without, his. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I know you consider it form of meditation, but. Yeah, it's not like it's not as much of an active process. Yeah, it's it's different. Yeah, it's kind of forced upon him. And have we learned before that if you die in the Avatar state, that's it? Uh, we have not learned that before. We knew that if the Avatar were to die, like that, it's kind of general knowledge. If the Avatar were to die, that the cycle would start over. Yeah, but this is Roku stating that you die in the Avatar state. That's it. It it is. There's no more coming. If you die in the Avatar state, you die in real life. You die in real life. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it, it ends it ends the cycle of reincarnation and there is no more Avatar. So you get phenomenal cosmic powers. <laughs> living space. Well, no, lots of living space. I mean, unless you're in a fish monster. Then unless you're Kurik. <laughs> <laughs> this is also uh, first time we see some of our past Avatars. We've seen 
Avatar Roku, and we've seen Kyoshi's the Earthbender. This is the first time we see Avatar Kurik, the water the waterbender before him. Avatar Yangchen, the air the last uh airbender before him. And Avatar Setso, who is uh who was the fire avatar before Roku, who also was a lava bender. Volcano man. Volcano man, yeah. <laughs> but I like that. I really like that they spread out and show the powers of those were, you know, four fully realized avatars that they showed in their natural element. And it was really cool to see Aang kind of look at those four people and those four people create him, like create him. He has all of those people with him. And to show that line, is that the first time we see that line that they do of like the lineage of the Avatar? Uh, well, we saw the statues. We saw the statues. I think that's the closest thing. Yeah. I don't know if we've seen the line. I don't think we've seen the line. But this is, this lineage, this line is something that we're going to see a few more times in Aang understanding the Avatar state and even in using the Avatar state himself. Yeah, it's very, I like the line. It's very, um, I was trying to get through one episode without a comparison, but it's, it's the dark side cave from last Jedi. (laughs) It's Ray's vision in the dark side cave. (laughs) I mean, okay. Yeah. You got your star Wars. (laughs) (laughs) I reached my quotient. (laughs) Hey, I've read our iTunes reviews. People like when I do that. They do. Leave more iTunes reviews that validate my star Wars comparison. Please. (laughs) Everyone. (laughs) the only way kelly will let me keep making those comparisons and send us tweets saying you want to talk about hair more (laughs) i've been watching too many brad mondo videos (laughs) i need to discuss people's hair i like how this whole plan backfires on Fong, and he like the half a second before it backfires on him he's like oh no what have i done yeah he's like oh he's like no she's fine look at she's fine i swear she's fine <laughs> she's, she's, she's good she's good it's okay it's good it's cool right yeah oh no know who pulled this before but didn't push it this far boomy boomy put katara in supposed danger with the crystal supposed danger so Supp- but like again same with this he said no 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 she's fine and boom boomy was willing to push ang all the way <laughs> just to get recognized I don't know if Sokka and Katara were ever in actual danger with Boomy, no. though. No, yeah, no, 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 no. But Katara was definitely in actual danger with Fong. That man was ready to kill her to end the war. And I think I think that Fong would consider Katara to be an acceptable sacrifice if it meant the end of the war, which is what makes him evil. Yes, agreed. There are many other things that make him evil, but that definitely makes him evil. Definitely makes him evil. I did not like him. I understood where he was coming from, and I hated every second of it. I mean, that's the trademark of a good villain. You know, you empathize with them and know where they're coming from. But mm, mm, is it okay? I would not say General Fong is a good villain. It's not a requirement for a okay. Mm, uh, he's a good antagonist. Okay, I'll take it. Maybe not a good villain. And yeah, because I'm, I'm like, backtrack we my have Azula in this. <laughs> I was like. Okay, but he's not a good villain in comparison to Azula. He is a good villain in and of himself. Taken on his own, he he's a good villain. He hits all the marks of a villain. He hits the mark. If we didn't have, I'm going to call it the B-plot. Yeah, no, that's fine. I getcha. If we didn't have the B-plot in this episode, he would have been the villain of the episode. Yes. 
And I think it would have been a lesser episode. I think if it had been expanded more from the extra time from not having the B-plot, it has the potential to be just as good an episode. But I, I don't think, I do think the, you know, quote, B-plot is stronger. Um, but I think maybe if there, if it had, you know, if the A-plot had been the only plot and there had been a full episode devoted to exploring just how easy it is to fall into Fong's logic and how horrible that logic is, it has the potential to be a really, really strong storyline. Okay, I could see that. I could see that. I think maybe maybe you're right. Maybe it's just this episode is kind of too crowded for him to be expand and be that villain that he could have been. Yeah, I think I think this episode is there's too much going on to really dig into him in the way that he's the Earth Kingdom Zhao. Yeah. And it's and it's it's difficult to say this because like he is such like his desires and his actions are so heinous. But like, I think he deserves more episode than he gets. Honestly, I don't know if I agree with that because I feel we've already done this and we've done it with Zhao. He very much reminds me of he's Earth Kingdom Zhao. He's the general who's ambitious, thinks that, you know, his way might win the war and I can skip over a few things and do it and and win the war and be acknowledged for it. That's what Zhao did by trying to kill the moon. Okay, but I think it's fundamentally different in that when we meet Fong, we meet him as a good guy. I think Zhao thought he was a good guy, too, for the Fire Nation. Zhao thinks he's a good guy in his own mind for the Fire Nation, but we meet him as an antagonistic character. We don't meet Fong as an antagonistic character. We meet him as a sympathetic character. The first scene we see with Fong, it's, you know, literal fireworks for Team Avatar, and they're celebrated. And I think that a full episode devoted to exploring the potential, like, dark side of war even when you're fighting a war that is you know in defense of freedom is an important narrative i don't know if i agree with that but i think i need a few more episodes to decide not the general fong is there but i think we will get that from other people i think we've kind of got that from jet um but we haven't seen it at kind of an authoritarian level yet uh we haven't seen it at the authority level yet we've seen it you know like street kid jet if he decides to go bad eh, eh, who cares but to see someone one of the good guys go bad um i think we'll explore that a bit more this season so the ending of this episode i think is kind of interesting because i noticed a thing we end this episode with Basically, Zuko and Aang, the two characters that like we follow this episode most closely, pretty much just restating the things like their desires and goals that they had at the end of last season. Yeah. This is a total bottle episode. Yes. Maybe that's why I didn't remember it as much. But I think like, you know, outside the show, that's really cool that they did that. Because, you know, we're sitting here and we're binging this. We're basically binging the show through. And I mean, it's not a true binge. It's like a week to week watch. But we don't have a season. We don't have like a full season break. We took a month because we decided to take a month. But we didn't have to. We could have just, you know, played the next episode. And so that sticks out a lot to us. But to the viewer back in 2006, it's been months since we've been with these characters. And I think that, you know, Aang and Zuko are both on their own paths that are both running in their own directions. And you know, we can talk about how those paths interact at another time. But 
this week it felt really a lot like they strayed from their paths and we have to get them back on it. I think here we have Zuko choosing his path uh, like like we had at the end of season one where he said, you know, I'm tired. I, I don't want to do this right now. He chose his path and that I'm going to run from my sister and I'm going to be on the run from the Fire Nation. Which is exactly where he was at the end of Siege of the North. Was he technically? I mean... Because Zhao wasn't there to report back. Was the entire fleet decimated? It seemed like maybe some of them might have been able to get away. They may have been able to get away, but Zuko's involvement was not as visible. Right, but he, he could wasn't. He wasn't near anybody. Um, Fair, but, you know, he, it doesn't seem like he makes any attempt to connect with the Fire Nation Navy in any way. I mean, he can't connect with the Fire Nation Navy because... Those people are from his dad, and he is still living in exile. He got his one ship, he lost it, and he's been doing this all on his own ever since. You don't think if he showed up onto a ship and said, you know, I'm Crown Prince Zuko, you're, I'm now commandeering the ship to fulfill my mission that was given to me by your fire, Lord Ozai, and, you know, maybe he has to, like, no, take out whatever the existing face. commander is. Okay, yeah, but he says it's strong, he takes out the existing commander, and now that's his ship. It's exactly what Azula would have done. Exactly what Azula would have done, but Azula's not Zuko. But I think a Fire Nation foot soldier is a Fire Nation foot soldier. Azula could have done it. Zuko, broken, defeated. You think he could march himself on there with enough stamina to be like, this is all mine now. Mm-mm. No, 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 no. Iroh could have done it. Iroh could have done it. Iroh was with them. Okay, regardless, you know, he he's not making an effort. Also, Zhao had made it clear to the Fire Nation that he was an enemy. Okay. To the ships that he was on because he tried to blow them up. The point is, he didn't make an effort. He's wearing the symbolic white robes of, you know, clean slate. Yes. We replaced the white robes of symbolic clean slate with the ceremonial braid cut. Ooh, the cutting of the hair. That was... So, there's writing on the blade. Did you see that? I did. I couldn't read it. So uh, the writing on the blade actually reads uh, it. So I can't I can't pronounce what it reads, uh, but it apparently means never give up without a fight. Ooh, yeah. We talked a lot at the end of the finale about how Zuko's on a different journey at that point. And when this episode opens that he's not on that different journey anymore, he's he's faltering in that decision to do something else and he falls back to his old ways and now his mind is made up you know he all he did was get back to where he was ang falters in this episode he ends season one you know off to go learn earthbending and fong convinces him to not learn earthbending fong convinces him to use himself as a weapon in the avatar state and i i think very similar to zuko that we see and ang says what a fragile state he is in post the siege of the north he is traumatized by he's dealing with a trauma of being in the avatar state and losing control of his body and losing control of himself and his power and he's broken down he's tired and so he wants to believe that the people in power are going to do the right thing for him and I think he kind of falls back to that in a way of like, you know, that, you know, I'm a kid. I'm just a kid, you know, and I uh, sure let's let's try this. Let's do that. You probably know better than me. And similar and Zuko was the same way of like he was tired. 
He was broken down and defeated. And he falters from, you know, that wanting to get rest to his comfort of, I'm going to capture the Avatar. Let's just put myself back on the path. And they're they're both trying to, you know, fix their mis- fix what they perceive as their mistakes and, you know, get back on the path toward doing the right thing. And that desire is what pulls them away from the path of doing the right thing. Both of them. And I think it's really interesting. Did you notice out of all of Aang's nightmares, the one that like is the final, the last straw before he changes his mind? His avatar state going against Zuko. The only nightmare he has that Zuko features in. Yeah. I think also that's the first time he's in the avatar state after escaping the iceberg yeah so that's his that's his you know in a way kind of a root trauma is the first time he lost control and it involves losing katara because zuko was about to hurt katara and it involves zuko chasing him (laughs) that's really interesting to note that that's the that's is this really the only nightmare that zuko's featured in yeah. So yeah, I think it's really effective how, you know, this episode in a way is is a doubling down on the the character shift that Aang and Zuko ex- both experience in Siege of the North. And I think it's a good reminder of that shift. It's all the reminders that we did not get in the season one recap at yeah, the beginning basically. of the episode. <laughs> Everything except the comet. <laughs> I never thought of this as a bottle episode. And now that you say it, it just like blows my mind. Well, because it's not the the return to status quo is a return to status quo of character motivation, which I feel like when you're just casually watching an episode is not necessarily something that you're deeply in touch with. Now I'm going to be curious. So the next episode that Azula's in to think, all right, is this a, is this a good introduction for her if that is a bottle episode in a way? Like if that is, you know... Just that. Because that's the only thing that stands out to me that says maybe it's not a bottle episode is because of Azula's introduction as she is the, you know. It's funny you mention that because um, when I think of Azula's introduction, I'm, I think of a very specific set of scenes. I'll point it out when we get there, but none of them are in this episode. When we revisit it, like my statement of when we see Azula next, is that a cool enough introduction in a way? <laughs> Like, to to say, that, yeah, this is a bottle episode. If you miss this one, it's fine. Well, I mean, I think, you know, I say bottle episode, but there is some baggage with that term. Like, there there is the, yeah, yeah. the connotation with bottle episode that you don't have to watch it to be yes. okay because everything goes back to normal. But I... I Which, m- when I think bottle episode, I think of two episodes of any TV show, which is Ember Island Players mm-hmm. and The Pen from Community. I haven't watched Community to know the pen. I'm I know, shocked. I know, I know. I would love Community. If, I know, okay. I know. Um, but I don't think when I think of bottle, like I don't carry that specific connotation with me in considering the term. I just like my my understanding of the term is much more. It there's no there's no pushing of the larger narrative. It doesn't move the season long arc or the show long arc forward in any particular way. Okay. I, which I accept is, that. Which is different from, you know, it can be surgically excised from the show. Yeah. And, like, there, there's a difference there because... The Great Divide. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> there's character stuff in there. But anyway, <laughs> it is, it, like, from a writer's standpoint, it's a fine line to walk between having that, you know, bottle episode in the traditional sense of it can be excised and you still have that character introduction of Azula later on 
but also not retreading that territory so much that the viewers who did watch the bottle episode are bored. Yeah, there needs to be enough new. Yeah, and I think I think they do a pretty successful job of it. Oh yeah, they they really upped the stakes at the end of this episode because I think at the end of season one, you know the stakes are high, but you're kind of left in limbo a little of like, okay, he's mastered, he's working on waterbending, he's got a waterbending master, what next, you know? Eh, he's going to go find earthbending, great. So we're going to have the same thing like we had in season one. And this episode, I feel, is saying, no, it's going to be a little bit of a different journey. He's going he's gonna to second-guess himself a bit more. And same with Zuko. Um, well, and to continue on that, that there are enemies from the inside, that not everyone... Good isn't nice. Nice isn't good type of thing. Yeah. And I just, I really love whenever the show gets very, very, very on the nose with the parallels between Zuko and Aang. And that that is this episode. That is, this is the, it's very strong parallels. There are the two path, winding paths, but they are not touching. <laughs> so I have one... Final question for you. At this, the conclusion of our discussion. Oh, gosh. Now that we have talked about this for longer than the episode, than our podcast episode will be. (laughs) Yeah. Not going to say how long. (laughs) Do you feel like it was a bit more cohesive, even though it had four writers than you initially did? (sighs) Yes. A little more cohesive. However, I could still feel like strong style changes. Okay. But I think they were both... There were different writing styles, but they were directed well. Does that make sense? I know it's an animated show, but I feel... Direction is an important part of animation. Yes. And so I feel this episode was very well directed so that you could have four writers telling these two and a half stories and have them line up on those parallel tracks. Have you watched the documentary on Disney Plus, Into the Unknown, The Making of Frozen 2? No. I highly recommend you have you take some time set it aside and watch that because it is it was for me an eye-opening experience with regard to how difficult it is to direct animation. Because when you're a director on a live action film, you know, on the shoot day, you're working very closely with your director of photography and, you know, some of your other high level creatives and your actors. And it's like, it's a lot of people, but it's a relatively small team that you're directly interfacing with. And then after photography, you know, you go into the editing room and you're, you're cutting a film. It, like, it's still, a, I feel like a smaller team. On animation, you're doing everything all at once, all at the same time. And you have to wrangle dozens of departments to work together when everything is still coming together as you're working with them. It is like plates in the air and juggling on one <laughs> foot with a blindfold. Yeah, I could see I, I I could see that because, I mean, I think of some animated things. They're like, yeah, we had one whole department just to do this thing's hair. Like, you know, and you'd have to d- talk to that department because maybe that's important. Like hair has been so important for us, you know, like. Yeah. But um, I think I think our discussions have made it more cohesive for me. I still think there are very different styles, but this was very well directed. And that is what really gave the cohesion for me. Thank you for listening to The Pie Show. 
If you liked what you heard, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let me know that you like my Star Wars comparison so Kelly can let me keep doing those. <laughs> you can find our show notes at thepieshow.fm slash 21. If you'd like to reach us, you can send us a tweet at thepieshow or email us at thepieshowpodcast at gmail.com. Or you could start to tell us your thoughts about what the spirit world is before we get to the episode The Swamp. And Colton and Kelly managed to murder each other. <laughs> no, 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 no. Just tell me that you like me talking about Star Wars so that I can keep doing that on a show that's not at all about Star Wars. Or send us a long email about the spirit world and your feelings on it and whether it's a plane or a place or a state of mind, because I will read all of it. All of it. Kelly, I have a yeah. question for you. Oh, yeah. You know I'm a Star Wars fan who likes The Last Jedi. Yeah. You know that's an unpopular opinion. Yeah. Why are you trying to get the Avatar fans mad at me, too? <laughs> I swear I'm not. <laughs> I see why you like Azula so much. <laughs>